You're in the water loop. Welcome to Waterloop, the podcast exploring solutions for sustainability and equity in water. I'm the host, Travis Loop. This is episode number 194, a view from the year 2099. It's the year 2099, and civilization has finally achieved global water sustainability. In this positive era, water is a human right, properly valued, efficiently and productively used, extensively reused, and part of thriving ecosystems. The path to this future is discussed in this episode with Peter Glick, author of The Three Ages of Water, and President Emeritus of the Pacific Institute. He explains the fundamental choice made in the 2020s that led to a sustainable water world, and how obstacles were overcome in politics, pricing, efficiency, energy, and agriculture. Before starting, I want to tell you about this episode's sponsor, Flume Utility and Business Solutions. I have a flume system at my house to track water use in real time and show me what's happening on my smartphone. Flume also provides crucial insights to water providers and state and regional planning agencies, enabling them to conserve water, stop leaks, plan for the future, comply with regulations, and so much more. Flume is partnering with leading water utilities across the country, such as the San Antonio Water System, Orange County Municipal Water District, and East Bay Municipal Utilities District. Flume's nationwide network of sensors collect residential water use data at five-second intervals. It provides detailed analysis of how water is used indoors and out, even down to the fixture level. To learn more, visit flumewater.com and please reach out to their team at partnerships at flumewater.com. You're in the water loop. Peter, it's great to have you on the podcast again. Excited to talk to you about your your new book, The Three Ages of Water. Uh, as is always the case, you bring tremendous knowledge and perspective. Uh, I really appreciated it. I encourage anybody that works in water uh, that to, to read the book. You think you know a lot. You don't know everything. And uh, just great history lessons and stuff in here. So uh, great, great book. Well, thank you, um, Travis. It's great to be here. Yeah. So one of the, you know, this this third age of water is kind of looking forward, right? This is where we go from here. Uh, and, you know, no big spoiler for folks, but you feel like we're going to get to a positive third age of water, right? One that's more sustainable. Um, we're going to try a little experiment here for this podcast episode. We're going to actually jump into a time machine and go to the year 2099. Uh, you write a little bit kind of from this perspective in the book. So I want to, I want to try this here. Um, time travel, boom, boom, boom. Here we go. Um, what is the snapshot of water, uh, in our world as we sit in the year 2099? What does it look like? Well, first of all, thank you for having me on. It's great to be here as we approach the 22nd century. <laughs> uh, we're, on, we're on the cusp of a, of a, a new century, and it, maybe it's worthwhile to look back. Um, uh, we've reached a point where, remarkably, we've solved the world's water problems. Mm. Uh, many of the challenges that faced us 
at the beginning of the, the 21st century, we've addressed, uh, we've moved to a more sustainable future uh, for water. Um, and there are a lot of different components to it. You know, in the 21st century, there were all sorts of crises that, that we had to deal with. Uh, the failure to provide safe water and sanitation for everyone, water conflicts, climate change, of course, ecosystem destruction. And now, as we approach the 22nd century, it's, it's maybe worthwhile to look back not just at where we are, but how, how we got here. Mm. Uh, and, and where we are is we've solved the world's water crises in the sense that everyone on the planet now has safe water and sanitation. Water poverty is a thing of the past. We are aggressively restoring natural ecosystems. We've taken down a lot of dangerous dams and old damaging dams and fisheries are healthier and wetlands are healthier now. Uh, we've cleaned up water because we have applied the technology that was invented years ago to provide clean water to everyone. Uh, we've reduced the risk of conflicts over water. We have international agreements and political agreements and diplomatic uh, uh, policies in place to reduce conflicts over shared access to water resources. And there's still plenty of problems, of course, uh, worldwide. But but we've solved most of the world's water problems, and it's a it's a it's a much brighter future. You know, back in the year 2023, uh, as we had all these kind of water crises around us, uh, what was the fundamental choice that was made? What do the history books tell us about the choice that was made that set us on the trajectory to a, a sustainable uh, water in 2099? What happened? Yeah, so that's really the key point. And in 2023, you know, in the early part of this, this century, we were faced with a choice. Uh, we knew that there were a series of water crises and environmental crises and political and social crises. The, the world was in a little bit of an upheaval. Uh, and at the same time, uh, there was a growing environmental awareness. We had a, a growing movement to both understand the science and the economics and the policies around our water crises. Uh, and we were also beginning to see all the success stories that showed us that a positive future was possible. Uh, the changes in water use efficiency, the ability to use more, more and more uh, technology, to use less water to do the things that we want. There were already the first inklings that uh, we could recycle and reuse water uh, over and over again. We didn't have to treat water and then throw it away. And so water reuse was beginning to be an important factor. We also knew that uh, there was more and more violence associated with water resources. There were conflicts over water where we were fighting over access to water. There were attacks on water systems during conflicts. Uh, water was a source of tension and violence. And diplomatic efforts were beginning to be made to address those issues. And of course, climate change by, by that time was already an obvious factor. Uh, we were seeing more and more extreme events, more and more impacts, especially on water resources. Uh, and there was a growing movement aggressively to address the climate problem as well. So twen the 2020s were a, an important part of the early transition. Hmm. Seemed like an age of enlightenment almost, where, where all, a lot of light bulbs went off around recognizing all the different challenges and the magnitude of the challenges, right? Like, hold on, we have to do something about this or we're not going to be in a good place 75 years from now. Yeah, that's right. You know, if you look at the media from the time uh, back in the 2020s, 
you look at social media, you look at the journalism that was happening, there was definitely a growing awareness of the nature of environmental crises in general. Climate change was really beginning to bite. Uh, water issues were increasingly important on the world stage and locally. Uh, and that growing awareness, plus the fact that even today, of course, people really care about water resources. Water is really important to everybody. Uh, that growing public awareness helped move the politicians who were always a little slower than the general public and the science community uh, mm -hmm. to start to take up this issue and to help drive this now successful transition. Well, here and here again on the cusp of the 22nd century, right? Year 2099. I hope you have great New Year's plans for 2100, by the way. Uh, everybody values water so much. Everybody understands its role to our health, to our communities, to our economy, to the entire functioning of the planet. Um, was that not the case back back in the early part of this century? And, and if, if not, how, how did that change? It was always true, I think, that people really cared about water. Mm. Uh, when you look at when you look at the public opinion polls from the, the late 1900s, the early 2000s, uh, all of those environmental polls showed that people really cared about water. Water was almost always at the top of the agenda where people were worried about water. They wanted safe, clean water. They wanted a healthy environment. Um, but uh, the political scene was always a little bit slower. Politicians always are a little bit behind the curve, as we even know today, uh, in addressing things that people care about. Uh, corporations were slow to come to the table and eventually did. Uh, there became a, a good corporate sustainability, corporate stewardship movement around water that helped to drive the transition to more sustainability. Um, but also the growing crises just became more and more obvious and it became more and more difficult to ignore the problem. Uh, that coupled with the fact that there were success stories, there were smart, innovative people and corporations and communities doing things that showed the way to a more sustainable future. Uh, the, the challenge in the 2020s was learning those lessons and scaling them up. Mm. Uh, how, what about the price of water? You know, I think that when you talk, when, when people talk about the value, it's linked to price, to cost, right? Um, how, how has the pricing models around water changed uh, in the past 75 years or so? Yeah, that's a great point too. Um, one of the biggest changes over the last many decades leading up to the, now to almost 2100 has been a fundamental change in economics. Um, you know, e traditional economics a century ago was based on very simple ideas about profit and loss. Uh, mm. it, it, it didn't understand the value of natural ecosystems in an economic sense. Uh, and the, the movement in the 2020s that really started to change in that regard was the field of what we now call ecological economics, where we've started not just understand what the price of something is, but what the true value of something is. You know, in the 2020s, you could drive a species to extinction and it wouldn't have any effect on what they called gross national product at that time. But now we understand that ecological values have an economic value as well. Uh, there was also a movement in the 2020s to move towards something that we now understand is, is just a reality, and that's the human right to water. We learned to balance not the economic benefits, but the human right values 
associated with those things and well as well. That's one of the things that helped drive uh, access to safe water and sanitation to everyone on the planet today. In 2020, there were billions of people that didn't have access to safe water and sanitation, something that's sort of hard to imagine today. And that led, of course, to water-related diseases, water poverty. Uh, women and girls had to spend hours walking for miles to collect water, often bad quality water. And when we acknowledge the human right to water, when we moved aggressively to provide safe water and sanitation to everyone on the planet, human health improved, access to education for girls and women improved, and their contributions to the economy improved. There was just a whole change in the way economically we thought about the value of water and more broadly, the environment. And that's been a big improvement too. Hmm. Uh, you mentioned the, the, the political will uh, and the politicians. Um, gosh, I can't imagine how bad they were back then either, but they're so key to changing the future. Um, how, how were the politicians or the politics developed to drive this change toward a positive future? Because that seems, you know, from what the history books tell us, to be one of the toughest obstacles to overcome is just the, the gridlock and the partisan politics out there. Yeah, I think one of the things we learned in the 2020s was that the, the solutions to solving our water problems didn't require inventing new technology. Mm. That the technology to provide safe water and sanitation or to clean up the most polluted water or to shift sources of supply away from draining our ecosystems to reclaiming water, to taking water out of the air, to desalinating the ocean water, those technologies all existed, um, but they weren't well implemented. Uh, and part of the problem was that politicians didn't think of this as a, a major issue that they had to deal with. The, the public really drove a lot of these changes and the politicians ultimately came around. You know, the same thing was true for climate change. Uh, the impacts of climate change in the 2020s were increasingly apparent. The science was clear by 2023 that humans were changing the climate and that there were enormous impacts already on water resources and all sorts of things. But it ultimately took the public to drive the political community to come to agreements about dealing with climate change. And changes in the energy system that happened often were driven by local communities and by smarter economics rather than political decisions. And the politics came later, but eventually uh, the political community realized that it was not only smart politically, but it was smart economically. It was smart from a, a public opinion point of view to address these issues more aggressively. And, and the politicians ultimately came around. Mm. I'd like to uh, dig into like some specific areas of water management uh, and learn a little bit more of the history here and how we got to this sustainable you know, time that we live in in 2099. Because uh, again, from what I understand, it, ha it hasn't always been this way. Uh, water efficiency. Um, you know, in my, in my classes, I've learned about wild inefficiency in the past, leaky systems, wasting water. Uh, how did we get more efficient with water? What were some of the key changes that, that made that happen? That really was key to this transition to a sustainable water future. Uh, in the old days, the, the way we thought about water 
which was described as the hard path for water, uh, was to assume that demand was going to grow. Populations were growing, economies were growing. The assumption was that demand for resources, including water, would always grow, and that the issue was how to find new supply. We built big dams, we tapped rivers, we overtapped our groundwater. Uh, whenever there was a, a, a need for more water, new supply was the thought was thought to be the answer. And part of the revolution in the water world was a shift from thinking about supply to thinking about demand, this question of, of water use efficiency, and the realization that we didn't really want to use water. We wanted clean clothes and clean dishes, and we wanted to grow food, and we wanted to make electronics and consumer goods, and all of those things require water. But if we thought about it carefully, we could do the things that we wanted with less water. And that was very simply the idea of improving water use efficiency, how to do what we want with less water. And that really led to a revolution in water use efficiency. Uh, the amount of water required to grow food today is much less than it was 100 years ago. The amount of water required to do the, the things that we want in our homes and our businesses and the, the, good, the goods and services that we want is much less today than it used to be. That's the water efficiency revolution. And as we've improved water use efficiency, we were able to reduce the demand on the natural environment. Part of today's uh, uh, revival of natural ecosystems was because we're able to restore water to natural ecosystems because we're able to do what we want with less water. Mm. I understand that in the beginning of the 21st century, agriculture used like 80% of the water. Uh, I, th I think that's kind of the right figure. That's a massive piece. Uh, and so I imagine that getting to, to this sustainable situation we're in in 2099 required big, big, big changes in ag. Um, and I think that was probably tough to do, political reasons, the need for food, all of that. So what happened in agriculture to make it a, a, a better user of water? Agriculture was key at the beginning of the 21st century. And the truth is, of course, agriculture is still key. We still need to grow the food for the world's populations. Speaking of which, one of the biggest transitions, of course, at the end of the 21st century today is that the world's population has peaked and is now starting to decline. Uh, that's the, for the first time in human history, of course, that's been a revolution in the human experience. And we're now trying to figure out how to deal with slowly declining populations. And that's a challenge. But on the agricultural side, uh, the vast majority of the water that we still use goes to agriculture to grow the food that we require. But again, as we just talked about it, we're much more efficient now. We're growing much more food with less water. We're getting more, as we say, crop per drop. And part of that transition was uh, this question of applying agricultural technology in more broad and, and widespread ways uh, to use more efficient irrigation technology, more drip irrigation and precision sprinkler irrigation, rather than, if you can believe it, they used to flood fields in the early part of this century wow. to grow food with enormous losses to evaporation and unproductive water use. We're also, we've improved crop types. We're no longer growing water intensive crops in the desert and the arid regions of the world. We're smarter about where we grow food. 
But another radical change in agriculture as we approach the 22nd century uh, has been a reduction in the waste in agriculture. We're much less wasteful about our food worldwide now. We waste less food in the fields. We waste less, we waste less food in, in processing. We all waste much less food that we buy in our stores and consume. And worldwide, there's been a big reduction in the amount of meat that's consumed. Uh, our diets are healthier. Meat has always been a very, very water-intensive way to provide calories for people. And over the last many decades, there's been a slow but continual transition away from meat toward more vegetables and fruits, uh, more water-efficient diets. And that's been a big change as well. Mm. Uh, the other the other area is is energy, uh, and from what I understand, you know, water use, water treatment, all the processes were incredibly energy intensive. Like uh, maybe for a municipality, it would have been like thirty or forty percent of their energy use was by their water utilities, um, and there's a lot of other areas where they intersected. Um, as part of dealing with climate change over the past 75 years and getting to a better place, how, how did that relationship change? What happened with that water energy nexus? Yeah, that's another great point. Uh, another thing that they were learning in the 2020s was that water and energy were very, very closely connected. And in fact, the transition today to a more sustainable water future was in part helped by the big transition that was occurring at the time in our energy world. Uh, and in the 2020s, the world was still dominated by fossil fuel use. Uh, that was the big driver of, of climate change, of course, as we, as we had learned. Uh, but in the 2020s, we were starting what turned out to be a very, very rapid transition away from fossil fuels, in part to address the climate problem, but in part, it turned out, to help us address the water problem. Um, a tremendous amount of water in the 2020s went to cooling fossil fuel and nuclear power plants, the old thermal power plants of the time. And as we made the transition to renewable energy, to solar, to wind, to geothermal, to ocean thermal, uh, to the systems that today power our energy world and have helped solve our climate problem, it turns out those energy systems require much less water to produce a kilowatt hour of electricity. Uh, and so there was a transition away from fossil fuels in the 2020s, but there was also a transition away from the the water required for that those energy systems. Uh, and so freeing up water from our old energy systems has also helped free up water to restore ecosystems, to provide water for food, to provide water for our populations. So the water energy nexus that was happening, that was we started to understand in the 2020s, uh, was an important part of the transition to our current, more sustainable future. Mm. I understand that like a hundred years ago, uh, there was a big movement toward desalination and thinking that desalination was going to kind of be the silver bullet for, for water scarcity. Uh, I know that they had these facilities all over the, the Middle East. Um, they were looking at like the American West and should we build these as a way to, to get water? Um, why didn't, why didn't desalination kind of just become the silver bullet for water scarcity? Well, Travis, as you know, desalination today is, is still a very important part of the water system in certain parts of the world. But one of the things we learned, you know, there was in the 2020s a, 
uh, well, maybe there's a, a simple technological solution to our problems. 97% of the water on the planet is salt water. It's too salty to drink. It's too salty to, to grow crops. But, you know, even in the 2020s, we knew how to desalinate. But one of the things we realized was that improvements in water use efficiency and treating wastewater to a very high standard and putting it to back to use, the, the issue of water reuse, were both easier technologically and cheaper technologically. And so we, we ended up doing those things first. And worldwide, improvements in water use efficiency and recycling and reuse of water uh, became really the fundamental cornerstones of this transition to a more sustainable future. And then we built desalination plants in places where populations continued to grow, where we were already very efficient or where we were reusing water, like in the Middle East. Desalination, even then and today, played an important role. Uh, but even today, those desalination plants are much more efficient. Uh, they're now driven with renewable energy rather than fossil fuels. Uh, and they do provide um, a reliable source of supply, a drought-proof reliable source of supply where we've done those other things that made sense first. Mm. Uh, I, I also learned that, you know, the, the waterways of a hundred years ago, the, the rivers, the bays, the coastal waters, oceans um, were in rough shape. I mean, the, the places I go now, they say you, you, you couldn't safely swim in them or the fish, you know, had all kinds of issues. Um, I understand there were thousands and thousands of dams across uh, across the waterways here in the U.S. Um, how was that turned around? Uh, you know, these vast natural ecosystems. How did they get those cleaned up? Again, one of the most remarkable transitions over the last century, uh, you know, as we approach twenty two hundred here, has been ecological restoration and revival. Uh, you know, even in the late 1900s, when the environmental movement really started, we understood that one of the biggest challenges was our dirty water systems, our pollution in waterways, our overuse of water, our paving over of wetlands and marshes. Um, starting in the, the early part of the 21st century, uh, we started to understand the nature of the problem, but also put in place the policies necessary to reverse ecological destruction. We started to see the first removal of dams from rivers. Uh, more and more big dams started to come down. And when we did that, we learned that fisheries could be restored, that salmon runs could be restored in the Pacific Northwest and in California. And they removed the Elwha Dam in the 20-teens and the, the Klamath River dams in the 20 2020s, and more and more big dams came down, restoring big ri rivers and ecosystems. And of course, we still have plenty of big dams. They're important for flood protection and drought protection and hydropower generation. But the really damaging ones have come down. Uh, we also understood increasingly that providing water for rivers, minimum stream flows, restoring wetlands, also had an important impact on human health, that human health was tied to a healthy environment. And as we understood that, we started to restore more and more of our natural ecosystems. And there's still a long way to go. We have a lot of damage that still needs to be, be reversed, um, but we've made the movement toward restoring rivers and ecosystems and wetlands and marshes. 
and their health is better. And the truth is, our own health is better as a result. L- lastly, you know, we've come so far with science and tech, and we can kind of send some messages through time. What what would you send back to those people of, of 2023 to make sure that 70, what, eight years, 75 years later, you know, this, this positive future still happens? You know, what do they need to keep in front of them? I guess the most important message is that uh, there is hope for a positive, sustainable future, that there are things that we know we can do, that we know we ought to do, uh, and that if we do them, that positive, sustainable future is possible. It's achievable. Uh, it, it's too easy to think about the 2020s and to despair about where we are and where we might might be going. Um, and the best way to move toward a positive future is to understand that that positive future is possible and that we need to simply mobilize um, our own communities and and do things as individuals and get our politicians to move in the right direction. Uh, it, it, if you give in to despair, then a positive future doesn't happen. Um, but knowing that a positive future is possible and that you don't need to invent magic technology uh, and that you can look at what's successful already and scale it up. That That's the message that I think needs to be conveyed. Yeah, great. Well, uh, Peter, I, I really encourage everybody to check out uh, your history lessons uh, in the three ages of water. Uh, people can learn a lot about the earliest ages, uh, the second age, and how we got to this good third age with a sustainable uh, water world around us. So thank you so much. Well, it's my pleasure. And of course, since you're in one of the first colonies on Mars that where water is incredibly important, it's great to have this interview. I absolutely. I'm so glad they figured out how to do this. Uh, and so I can enjoy this, this rust-colored sunset here. It's beautiful. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the podcast. And thank you to this episode's sponsor, Flume Utility and Business Solutions. Please check them out at flumewater.com. To find all episodes, sign up for email updates, and connect on social media, visit waterloop.org. You're in the Waterloop.